Before we begin, I want to warn you that this episode might be very disturbing for some people. It depicts a despicable crime, and unfortunately, to depict it accurately, we'll need to learn some of the horrible details of the case. So, if you're listening with kids, consider this your parental advisory. After directing such classics as 1967's Carrie, 1983's Scarface, and the 1996 Mission Impossible, Brian De Palma has made his share of hits. Love or hate his movies, no one can deny their impact on Hollywood history. Ten years ago, the legendary director released a noir crime thriller called The Black Dahlia. The film boasts an all-star cast of Hollywood talent, including Josh Hartnett, Scarlett Johansson, Aaron Eckhart, and Hilary Swank. The film was the poster child for Hollywood's stalled productions. It all started in 1987 after James Elroy published the novel of the same name that told the Black Dahlia story. The Black Dahlia was the nickname for a woman by the name of Elizabeth Short. After James's L.A. Confidential was adapted to film successfully, Hollywood started looking at his other novels. Universal Studios hired Josh Friedman to write the screenplay. Originally, the plan was to bring in two characters from L.A. Confidential, Bud White and Ed Exley. Those two characters were played by Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce, respectively. But that fell through. Then the lead role, a character named Dwight Bucky Blackheart, was written around plans to cast Paul Walker, then rewritten when Stephen Dorff was planned to play the role, then rewritten again for Chris O'Donnell. Similar back and forth happened for all of the characters. Some of the other stars who were considered for the film ranged from Michael Douglas and Johnny Depp to Mark Wahlberg and Tiffany Thiessen. Through all of this, screenwriter Josh Friedman spent eight years as the story went through multiple changes, not much of the true story lived through those rewrites. Many moviegoers wanting to see a true crime story of the Black Dahlia were sorely disappointed. So let's dive into the real story of the Black Dahlia and find out just how accurate the movie was. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before we jump into today's story, I wanted to take a few moments to chat about Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a third-party website that lets you support content creators like me. If you're enjoying this show and want to help me pay for the coffee that I'm drinking while I write and record the show, you can do that over at patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast. There, you can offer whatever you can, from a dollar a month all the way to a million if you really want. But of course, I want to give all my patrons a little extra, so I'll give you a peek behind the creation of each episode, as well as an exclusive first look at what's coming next. So if you want a heads up on what's coming next week, so you'll have time to watch the movie before listening to the episode, hop over to patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast. Once again, that's patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast. That's all one word. You can find a link to that in the show notes too. And now... Let's compare history with Hollywood's version of the Black Dahlia. Now, 
The movie starts with a boxing match set up between two police officers. Josh Hartnett's character is Detective Dwight Bucky Blackheart, a boxer turned cop with the nickname Mr. Ice. His partner is Aaron Eckhart's character, Lee Blanchard, another boxer turned cop nicknamed Mr. Fire. So the movie starts with a boxing match set up between Mr. Fire and Mr. Ice to help get a city bond voted in that would raise money for the LAPD. None of this happened. In fact, the characters of Bucky Blackheart and Lee Blanchard are completely fictional. They're made up, as is the storyline of the two detectives being boxers. The film's title and the title of the novel it was based on is probably one of the few things that comes from truth. It was the nickname given to an aspiring actress by the name Elizabeth Short. And like in the movie, Short was brutally murdered and mutilated almost exactly 60 years before the movie's release on January 15, 1947. But for a film named after Elizabeth Short, it doesn't really focus much on her. The only times we see her, really, are in screen tests that Bucky watches. That's the only way we get to know her. In one of those tests, we find out that Elizabeth was from Boston. And that is true. Elizabeth Short was born in Boston, Massachusetts on July 29, 1924. Another small fact the movie got correct was when Elizabeth's father says he had five daughters. Elizabeth was the third, born to Cleo and Phoebe May Short. At the age of five, Elizabeth's life would change forever when her dad, Cleo, lost almost all of his money in the 1929 stock market crash that kicked off the Great Depression. After struggling to make ends meet, Cleo parked his car on a bridge in 1930 and simply disappeared. Everyone assumed he committed suicide, and Phoebe was forced to raise the five children on her own. She managed to get a job as a bookkeeper and moved into a small apartment. Months later, Phoebe received a letter from California. It was from Cleo. He was still alive. The letter didn't offer much, simply an apology for leaving. We don't know a lot about Elizabeth's childhood. It's not because of lost records, but mostly because her childhood didn't seem to stand out, so she simply blended into the crowd. We do know she dropped out of high school after only one year. We also know she had asthma and that she dated a lot of young soldiers. For two summers, Phoebe sent her to Miami. The best reason for this that historians have come to was that the warmer climate would help with her asthma. This is just my own speculation, but with five daughters and Elizabeth being 16 at the time, one has to wonder if she was starting to act inappropriately with some of the young soldiers, and maybe that was part of the reason for her being sent to Miami. These were the summers of 1940 and 1941, when Elizabeth, or just Beth as she was called by her friends, was 16 and 17. While she was in Miami, she waited tables. And like many young women of the time, she caught the eye of many soldiers as they came and went due to the impending war. In 1943, at only 18 years old, Beth moved to the San Francisco Bay Area to live with her father, who by this time was helping with the war effort as he worked at the Mare Island Naval Shipyard. When Beth moved in with her dad, the two moved to LA. That was short-lived though, and Elizabeth moved out after they argued. We don't know what the argument was about, 
But seeing that Cleo had spent the last 10 or so years as a bachelor, now living with his teenage daughter, it's natural to assume that fights ensued. Especially considering Beth didn't have a father figure in her life up to this point, and so it would have been something that was new to her as well. In the movie, Beth is portrayed as an aspiring actress. She's in the LA area to try to get her big break. While we just learned that there were some other reasons for her being in LA, she did claim to be an aspiring actress. She worked as a waitress to pay the bills while she tried to catch her big break. But she never really focused on being an actress. And she never settled down into one place for very long. It was almost as if she was wandering aimlessly through life, trying to find a purpose. When she moved out from her dad's house, she moved in with a soldier she just met. But then she left him too after the two had an argument. From there, she made her way to Santa Barbara and applied for a job as a clerk at the nearby military base, Camp Cook. That's Cook with an E. This is where she was arrested on September 23, 1943 for going to a bar at the age of 19. This arrest provided authorities with the mugshot that they would use to identify her only a few years later. After getting arrested for underage drinking, the police decided to send her back to her mom in Massachusetts. They put her on a bus, and for the next couple of years, Beth went back to the routine of living at her mom's in Medford, just outside of Boston, in the summer, and then moving to Miami in the winters. While she was in Boston, she worked at a restaurant near the Harvard campus, and in Miami, she worked at a cafe. In both places, she was always dating someone new. This wasn't mentioned in the movie, of course, but while Beth was in Miami in the winter of 1944, Beth met a couple of soldiers who stuck around for more than just a single date. They were Major Matthew Gordon and Lieutenant Joe Fickling. As World War II raged on, Matthew was deployed to India. While he was there, he wrote a letter to Elizabeth where he proposed, and she accepted Sadly, the marriage would never happen. Matthew died in a plane crash on August 10, 1945, just five days before Japan ended World War II by surrendering to the United States. After hearing of her fiancé's death, Elizabeth returned to L.A. so she could be near the couple's mutual friend, Lieutenant Joe Fickling. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden, I had a huge, unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then, because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. 
EarnIn is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, EarnIn. On January 7th, 1946, the war was still fresh on everyone's minds when the United States was about to be shaken with the news of a brutal murder. It happened in Chicago, and at first, it was just the disappearance of a six-year-old named Suzanne Degnan. When police showed up at the scene, they found a note that said, quote, Get $20,000 ready and wait for word. Do not notify FBI or police, bills in fives and tens, end quote. Then, on the other side, the note said, quote, burn this for her safety, end quote. The mystery was local at first, but soon hit the front page of newspapers around the nation when the police started to discover body parts. First, it was Suzanne's head in a storm drain just a block from the family's home then her right leg in an alley, her torso in another storm drain, and her left leg in a different alley. It wasn't until a month later when her arms were found in a sewer three blocks away. As best as the police could tell, Suzanne had been murdered in an apartment building nearby. There, she was dismembered, the room cleaned, and then her body parts were spread around the city. Beth was fascinated by the murder many called quote, the crime of the century, end quote. She tried to find out as much as she could. In April of 1946, Beth left Massachusetts and drifted around the country. We don't know why, but for some reason, she went through Miami first, then headed back north to Indianapolis, and finally to the scene of the crime, Chicago. While she was meandering around the country in June of 1946, the police captured William Hirons. William confessed to three murders, including Suzanne. So by the time Beth made it to Chicago, William was on trial as a confessed serial killer. Beth used this as an opportunity to learn more about the Suzanne Degnan killing as she pretended to be a reporter from Boston covering the trial of William Hirons. We don't have all of the details, but one of the people she fake interviewed for the Boston paper she claimed to be from would later say, quote, Elizabeth Short was one of the prettiest girls I ever met, but she was terribly preoccupied with the details of the Degnan murder." End quote. After only 10 days, Beth seemed to grow tired of her investigative journalism. Joe Fickling, the lieutenant that she had met with Matthew Gordon a few years before, had written her asking her to move to LA to be with him. She obliged and made her way back to Los Angeles. Sadly, again, this relationship was never to happen. After only being together for a few weeks, the couple broke up in the beginning of August. Since she was close to Hollywood, Beth went back to trying to be an actress. This time, she moved in with a friend for a couple days. She's tough to pin down exactly, but we know she stayed at an old hotel for a few days, a rooming house for aspiring actresses for a few more, and then an apartment for yet another few days. Basically, she was bouncing around. She claimed she wanted to be an actress, but she never really put forward a serious effort. Before, when she was in LA, she supported herself by being a waitress, but this time around, she didn't. 
she supported herself by going to bars and nightclubs and getting men to give her money. Some were well-to-do, but most weren't. As you might imagine, this wasn't a very stable income. Beth found herself with a new date almost every night of the week just to put a roof over her head and get some food. But her financial situation was only getting worse. When she wasn't with a man, she was living at the Chancellor Apartments and with each passing day falling a little further behind in rent. According to Juanita Ringo, the apartment manager, quote, I felt sorry for her even when she got behind on the rent. She looked tired and worried. When I went up for the rent last December 5th, she didn't have it. I don't think she had a job. That night, she got the money somewhere and left the next morning, end quote. According to some historians, this money magically showed up from another of Beth's admirers, a man named Ed Burns. But yet others dispute the even existence of Ed Burns. We'll likely never know for sure where Beth got the money to catch up on rent. What we do know, though, is she managed to pay the rent but left the Chancellor Apartments and took a bus to San Diego. Again, some argue that Ed provided the funds for this. After arriving in San Diego, she didn't have anywhere to go, so she checked her luggage at the Greyhound Depot and made her way to the Aztec movie theater. She dozed off, awakened later by a woman by the name of Dorothy French. Dorothy was a 21-year-old cashier at the theater. While we don't know what the exact story was that Beth told her, we do know Beth spent the next month living with Dorothy, her mother, and younger brother. Beth went back to her old ways, parties and a new man every night. One of these men was Robert Manley, nicknamed Red by his friends. Red was a 26-year-old traveling salesman from Los Angeles who was on business in San Diego. Despite being married with a young son, Beth hit it off with him. After a delightful dinner, the two set up a second date for January 6th, 1947. Beth said she worked at an airline office, but when Red showed up, no one knew in Elizabeth Short. Red called Beth the next day. After what must have been an awkward conversation about the evening before, Beth asked Red to drive her back to L.A. He obliged since he was headed back anyway, but first he had a few sales calls to finish up. So that evening, after he was done, the two went for drinks and then got a motel room for the night. The next day, they got on the road. Later, Red would be called in to testify, and it's from his testimony that we have an idea of what happened. After about an hour and a half, they stopped in Encinitas, California. Red had another sales call to make there. After he checked in with his client, Red and Beth stopped at a local diner for a burger. Then they got back on the road. There wasn't a lot of conversation in the car. According to Red, Beth had said it was, quote, just that time of the month, end quote, and she wanted to be left alone. Being married himself, he certainly had a lot of thinking to do, so Red obliged. They made another stop about an hour later at Laguna Beach to fill up with gas. Red stayed out with the car while Beth hit the restroom in the station. According to him, Beth wanted to be dropped at the Greyhound bus station so she could check her things there. Red claimed that Beth made him believe she'd never been in LA, so he convinced her that the Greyhound station was in the bad part of town and he should drop her off at the Biltmore. 
Throughout the whole trip, Red claimed that Beth said she was going to meet her sister, Mrs. Adrian West, at the Biltmore anyway, so he should just drop her off there and skip the Greyhound station entirely. Robert Manley dropped Elizabeth Short off at the Biltmore Hotel on January 9th, 1947. Beth went to the restroom while Red went to the front desk to see if Mrs. West was there yet. There was no record of a Mrs. West, so Red bade farewell to Beth and left. He was happy to be rid of her and looked forward to returning to his own family. He got in his car and drove off at 6.30 p.m. It was the last time anyone would see Elizabeth alive. We haven't really talked much about the movie because it doesn't show any of this. Instead, the movie focuses on the story of two fictitious characters played by Aaron Eckhart and Josh Hartnett. But it does show the moment when Elizabeth's body is found. In the movie, it's a long shot from a distance when you see a woman walking down the street. She sees something and then starts screaming as she tries to track down a car in vain. Part of that is true. At 10 a.m. on January 15, 1947, Betty Bursinger was walking her three-year-old daughter along South Norton Avenue between Coliseum Street and West 39th Street when she noticed something in the grass. At first, she thought it was a store mannequin someone had thrown away. Then, horror struck as she realized what it really was. She didn't chase down a car like in the movie, but instead ran into a nearby house where she called the police. The first two police officers who arrived were Frank Perkins and Will Fitzgerald. More followed quickly as the two immediately called for help. In the movie, once the body is discovered, there's a scene where the press swarms the crime scene as the cops try to keep them back. This actually happened. By the time we see police at the crime scene, there's a lot of them there. But in truth, by the time the officers, Perkins and Fitzgerald, showed up, the word had already spread like wildfire about Short's murder. The two officers called for detectives, but by the time they came to the scene, it was swarming with reporters and plenty of curious onlookers. The movie has the case assigned to Detective Russ Millard, played by Mike Starr. In truth, it was Detective Sergeant Harry Hansen and his partner, Finnis Brown, that got the case. When he arrived, Harry was livid. The scene was being trampled by reporters, bystanders, and even some careless police officers that were there. Immediately, he ordered everyone to clear the area. The movie was pretty accurate with the mutilation of the body. Elizabeth's body had been given a hemicorporectomy. That's a medical procedure that's usually the last resort for someone, as it slices the body beneath the second and third lumbar vertebrae. This is the only place the body can be severed in half without breaking a bone. In addition, Beth's face had been slashed from ear to ear, creating what's referred to as a Glasgow smile or a Chelsea grin. Her thighs and breasts had been cut with portions of flesh cut away. Her body had been washed clean. Despite all of this mutilation, there wasn't a drop of blood. As if this wasn't enough, her body had clearly been posed by the killer in some sort of a sick, seductive pose. The upper half of her body was a full foot away from the lower half. Her hands were over her head. 
Her elbows were bent at unnatural right angles and her legs were spread. The movie makes note of bruising, suggesting that she had actually been killed with a baseball bat. That is partially true. The part that wasn't true was the pinning of the baseball bat. We simply don't know if that was the murder weapon. But Beth's cause of death was considered to be hemorrhaging due to blows on her face and head. She had bruising on her head that was consistent with blows to the head. Her skull wasn't fractured though. On her wrists, ankles, and necks were rope marks. This indicated Elizabeth had been tied and tortured for days. Thanks to her application to work for the military at Camp Cook, even if it was briefly, Elizabeth's fingerprints were on record. The police sent her fingerprints to the FBI and it took only 56 minutes to identify the body. After that, it didn't take long for the rest of the world to find out. As newspapers printed the story, public interest only became more and more intense. It was the Los Angeles Examiner newspaper that contacted Beth's mom, Phoebe. They told her that Beth had won a beauty contest and tried to get as much personal information as they could about Beth. Then, after they had achieved what they wanted, they broke the news. Beth had been brutally murdered. While Beth certainly wasn't close to her mom, it still had to have been a shock. One can only imagine the emotions that Phoebe was going through. The examiner offered to pay for Phoebe's flight and hotel if she'd come to LA to help with the investigation. But this was a lie. Oh, they paid for her flight and hotel, but the examiner only flew her out to LA so they could keep her as an exclusive source for themselves. They specifically kept her away from the police and any other newspapers. The day after her body was found, the Los Angeles Examiner broke records for sales. The only copy that had sold more was the announcement of the victory in World War II. It was the Examiner, along with another LA newspaper, the Los Angeles Herald Express, that brought forward the moniker Black Dahlia. It was a mixture of Beth's known preference of wearing black hair and black clothing, along with a recent murder mystery released in Hollywood, George Marshall's The Blue Dahlia. With so many articles circling, it didn't take long for the nickname to catch on and be used everywhere. Elizabeth Short became the Black Dahlia. As the police and FBI began to unravel the mystery, they quickly began to realize there was only more left to unravel. Thanks to Elizabeth's life of partying and dating a new man every night, the police were left with countless people they needed to investigate. They did a house-to-house -house search, but no leads came. Then they received a tip that the last place she was seen was at the Biltmore. From the Biltmore Hotel's registration records, the police lifted the names of thousands of people they spent time interviewing. Because of the mutilation of the body, the police were convinced someone with medical knowledge had done it. How else could they cut the body in two so cleanly and drain all of the blood? On January 23, 1947, the Los Angeles Examiner received a mysterious phone call from someone claiming to be the killer. They offered to mail some of Beth's items to the newspaper. The next day, they followed through and a package arrived. Inside was Beth's birth certificate, some business cards, photographs, paper with names written on them, and an address book. The book had the owner's name on it, a Mark Hansen. As you might expect, Mark became a suspect immediately. 
He was a nightclub owner who had met Beth on multiple occasions as she came to his clubs to party. After digging into Mark's background a little more, the police found out that Beth had called Mark on January 8th. This made Mark one of the very last people to talk to Beth. But then they found out that the address book that had been sent to the newspaper may have belonged to Mark at one point, but Beth had taken it and used it as her own. The police could never tie the murder to Mark Hansen, nor could they tie it to anyone else. There were plenty of suspects. Because of the high public nature of the case, the police received plenty of confessions. In all, 60 people confessed to the murder. These were mostly men, but there were a few women scattered in as well. Of these, the Los Angeles District Attorney narrowed down the list of suspects to be about 25 people. Mark Hansen was one of them, as was Robert Manley. Was Robert, or Red, telling the truth? Did he actually take her from San Diego to Los Angeles and drop her off without incident? Or did he lie in his testimony? But Robert dropped off the list of suspects when he had an alibi for the days after he dropped Beth off at the Biltmore and passed two polygraph tests. Due to the sheer scale of the investigation, the LAPD was way behind. They couldn't follow up on every lead. In fact, it was because of the Beth Short case that in February of 1947, California became the first state in America to require the registration of convicted sex offenders. In the movie, we find out what happens to Beth at the end when we find out that she died at the hands of the Linscott family. The Linscotts are an upper-class family with Emmett and Ramona, played by John Cavanaugh and Fiona Shaw, respectively. Then, of course, there's Madeline, played by Hilary Swank, and Martha, played by Rachel Miner. Altogether, these four make up what we find out is a rather insane family who isn't afraid of using their wealth and social standing to do whatever they want, even commit a brutal murder. This ending is actually pretty smart on the part of both the novelist, James Elroy, and Josh Friedman, the screenwriter. Why? So in the movie, the story itself is explained in a way that only Josh Hartnett's character, Bucky, knows the truth, but he can't prove anything. While we know the way the movie portrayed it didn't happen, because all of those characters are fictional, the Linscott family doesn't exist, the truth is we simply don't know what really happened to Beth. So, is there a lone detective out there, like Josh Hartnett's character, who found out the truth but couldn't prove it? Maybe. To this day, you can get lost in the whirlwind of conspiracies that surround the Beth Short murder case. Although we'll never know if someone out there does know the truth, perhaps the inspiration for this sort of ending came from Elliot Ness. According to Elliot's biographer, Oscar Fraley, Elliot may have known who the killer was, Quote, this lady socialite who was working with him came to him and said, a member of one of our influential families fits your profile. So Elliot said, that's fine, let's meet him. This man admitted he had been to medical school, so Elliot thought surely he had the guy, end quote. But Oscar wasn't talking about someone who only killed Beth, he was talking about another serial killer who may have been responsible for many more deaths. The popular 1980s and 1990s TV series Unsolved Mystery covered the Black Dahlia murder and did a decent job of explaining this connection. In it, they linked ties to another Unsolved Mystery, 
the Torso Killer in Cleveland, Ohio. Elliot Ness was the public safety director in Cleveland at the time, and another who gained popularity posthumously when the fictional movie The Untouchables was released. In real life, Elliot was pursuing the Cleveland Torso Killer, a serial killer who had dismembered at least 12 victims between 1935 and 1938. The killer's victims were left posed and mutilated, much in the way Beth's body was. Many of the victims in Cleveland showed signs of being cleaned as well, although none of them were quite as clean as Beth's had been. While there's no documentation to back this up, many people thought Elliot Ness knew who the Cleveland Torso Killer was. Elliot had given his primary suspect two lie detector tests, both of which he failed, and after admitting himself to a mental hospital, the slayings in Cleveland stopped. Then, Elliot received a letter from the suspect. According to Unsolved Mysteries, quote, In that letter, the torso killer describes the fact that he has left Cleveland and has come to California, as he described it, sunny California, and is now performing medical experiments upon his guinea pig victims here in Los Angeles, end quote. The man Elliot suspected had apparently left Cleveland for California in 1939. Perhaps not coincidentally, the Torso Killer's last killing in Cleveland was in 1938. Sadly, Elliot simply could never pin any proof on his suspect, and so he was left free. Another lead for the Black Dahlia murder case came along in 1999, when one of the suspects, a physician by the name of George Hodell, passed away at the age of 91 due to heart failure. After he died, his son, Steve, started to go through his dad's things. As he did, Steve, who was a former LAPD homicide detective, started to learn some things about his dad that left him unnerved. George Hodell had undergone his own public trial after his teenage daughter, Tamar, had accused him of sexual abuse in 1949. He was acquitted. Steve found out that his father was also a suspect in the lipstick killer case, the murder of Suzanne Degnan that Beth had been captivated by. In 2003, Steve Hodell published a book with his findings where he suggests that his own father may have killed numerous young women as one of the only LA-based physicians performing abortions at the time. In 2012, Steve brought a cadaver dog to his dad's former home. These specially trained dogs can detect the scent of human decomposition and alert when they smell it. On this occasion, the dog alerted in several areas of the house. A soil sample was taken in the alley outside where the dog had alerted yet again, and the sample came back positive for human remains. George Hodel moved to San Francisco in the 1960s and Steve believes his father may have also been responsible for the Zodiac killings that plagued that city during those times. If he was the killer, George was never caught in his lifetime. To this day, the Black Dahlia murder remains unsolved. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. Countless people have spent an endless amount of hours trying to solve the case of Beth Short. Sadly, we will probably never know who was responsible for her brutal murder. If you want to dig into this true crime yourself, I'd suggest starting with one of these two books. 
Black Dahlia Avenger by Steve Hodel, and Severed, the true story of the Black Dahlia by John Gilmore. Thanks for listening to the Based on a True Story podcast. You can find the show's home on the web at basedonatruestorypodcast.com, or if you have thoughts on the show, join in the discussion on Facebook at facebook.com slash basedonatruestorypodcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you know someone else who might enjoy the true story behind this unsolved true crime thriller, I'd really appreciate it if you shared it with them. You can also leave a rating and review on iTunes and help more people discover the show through the largest podcast directory around. Finally, if you want to get in touch with me directly, and I really hope that you do, you can find me on Twitter at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Until next week, thanks for listening.